You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. This means that we donate 1% of our time and 1% of our revenue to conservation. If you want to find out how you or your business can get certified or learn more about the organization, visit fishandwildlife.org. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Yeah, I saw that post and I was like, yo, what, at what point, or at what point does the ship get turned around where it's like, we start seeing more positive and more educated posts and we see more, um, Posts where you can see the guy has a clear understanding of, and not not to downplay or or to to throw shade on people that are just getting into it, but it's just like, you know, first and foremost, it's just ah, there's a lot of work to be done, and that's why everybody's here on this podcast. Well, that's what I'm gonna say. We're gonna start it. We're gonna turn it around right here this week on the podcast because what we touched on last week was the start of a new series. Yeah, series on vegetation, and we feel like it's super necessary to go through and break down the different types, classes of vegetation that everyone's going to encounter, no matter if you're in the southeast or the north or the northeast or the midwest. Um, We're going to try and do our best to break down the different classifications and then go through what they are specifically, how you might encounter them, how you might manage them, what they are good for and what they're not good for. And so this is, let's say, week one of this little podcast series that we've got going on. And we're talking about grasses. Yeah, I felt it appropriate to start off with grass because it seems like it seems like grass is start discussed from the bottom, right? way more than the forbs or shrubs. Oh, yeah, and sure. It's like you need to put it in its place, right, a yeah. little bit? It's it's almost like it's the most popular that we see yeah, for sure, and yet it's I would if you ranked it out and you said a field of shrubs, a field of tre- or 
a field of shrubs. So basically, just picture a parking lot. When I say field, I'm just talking about an area. And you say shrubs, and then you go with trees, and then you go with straight grasses, and then you go with straight, like, forbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the main ones yep. that we're talking. Those Are there four. any others? So no. those four, and I would say the 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 or or the, invasives. We do yeah. have the invasives. We're gonna do a week yeah. of invasives, but and then the, 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 if you took those four areas, I would look at the one of the grass being the least productive, in my yeah. opinion, because I'd be like, there's no, f- I mean, there's certain food value. there's certain animals that would be okay. But there's very little food value uh, from a gr- from a big picture, a long list of wildlife. So, or even more sh- specifically, there'd be times of the year where certain animals utilize that way more than other times where they avoid it like the plague. Yeah, it'd be very feast or famine, I guess. Yeah, for and sure. It, and the fa- the feast would be a very short window of time. Well, I, I think to go back to like why people favor grasses so much is, I think I think that there's almost this. Um, like where do you turn to to get your information from and a lot of people when they're when they're working land um their experiences are on cattle farms or excuse me not cattle farms but just farms in general and there's such a um i i guess i don't say over usage but just a significance placed on grasses when it comes to the agricultural community um whether it be yep. through grazing or whether it be through CRP and for a lot of hunters um you know, th- that's where their experiences come from. So it seems like, wow, I need to know so much about all these grasses um, well, because and, and they, they, they must play a role in the wildlife, and they do play a role. It's just the definition of the Great Plains. Like, you can watch mm-hmm. any old, and mm-hmm. they talk about seas of grass. or They didn't talk and, about the, the diverse and, and forbs. The, and then you go and look at, like, just the definition of the eco- ecological regions. It'd be the tall grass prairie, the yes. short grass prairie. Yes. It's yes. like... You automatically just like, well, it's lots of grass. It's dominated by grass, 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 grass. Sure, grass, there's grass. a lot of grass, but there's also a long list of other things that are well, even, even. There's a lot of shrubs that are scattered. There's a lot of forbs, totally. certainly. Uh, and Wh- then when you, you talk about a savanna, you, oh, yeah. it's just as much a grassland as it is a you could say a, a, a forest. Yeah. But it's like it's a you, you just the the word grass is brought into so many discussions. Yep, it's like it's like overweighted. Yeah, it's you could look at the savanna and say. Well, it's grassland, but it's got trees, or it's a forest, but it's got grass. Mm-hmm. And, and but there's mm-hmm. not as many trees, but there's still trees polka dotted around it. So, but like side by side comparison, there's so much diversity in the grasslands. You know, some of the most the richest grasslands um, in, in the in the country aren't far from here. Well, when it comes to like species diversity, they're talking like. 60 70 or 90 plants in in a square meter yeah and it's like that's not all grass like there's so many other things that comprise those the vast number of species that can be found in that one square meter um and even though it's called a grassland it's not just grass and thank thank goodness it's not but thank goodness (laughs) here we are talking about grass today the 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 first week here of the of the series and i think it it does paint a really good picture to then go like, okay, here we have an over-significance of, of um, grass that is influencing what seems to be a lot of land managers and the wildlife side of things. So we need to like kind of set the bar, set the tone here with grass to start from the bottom, and then we're going to work our way up into larger vegetation and stuff that does play more of a significance. 
So mm-hmm. before we jump in, though, we got a reminder of our virtual property evaluations. Yeah, absolutely. Those are available really at any time throughout the year. It is a virtual, you know, interaction between either Adam or I, Kyle, Frank, working with you guys on your property. We share pictures back and forth, go over aerials, and try to just map out, you know, what it is you're trying to achieve on the property and work with you virtually, kind of a one-on-one consultation online. Absolutely. You know, what's been most popular so far, we've we've done them across the country already, and uh, typically, you know, the way we first started talking about it was, you know, send us your pictures of your farm, send us the photos from each spot on the farm. We'll go through it in an online chat room, uh, classroom or chat to where we can see the pictures, both of us share screens to where we can get a really good feel of what's going on. But it's also for guys who maybe they already have a plan implemented mm-hmm. and they just want to hear back from us or, heck, I, just they may already have – a local conservationist or a local state biologist come out there and they're just like, I just want to hear your opinion too. Absolutely. It's an opportunity for us to kind of voice our opinion, our concerns, yeah. or or basically say, you know, this all looks good. Maybe do a few tweaks here and there on that plan. And I believe it puts you in, headed in the right direction. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a great like sounding board. It doesn't have to be a total, hey, I want to, I want you to review the entire property. It's more or less... I've got questions. Yeah. Utilize us. That's what we're here for. So if you guys are interested in doing that, please um, send us an email at info at landlegacy.tv or hit us up on uh, messaging through Facebook or Instagram. We'd love to help you guys out. Yeah. So um, as we kick off and jump into this plant uh, podcast 284, plant ID grasses or whatever you're going to call it, but basically we're devoting the whole podcast to grasses. And we're gonna so let's let's go ahead and start jumping in your yep. notes there, Matt. So really, I think it's first start off with the definition. There's there are two definitions here, but kind of I like. Yeah, parts I want to hear what you found them. is what you, <coughs> you like. Can, so you got one too? Yeah, perfect. Um, so I'm gonna read two of them. First one: vegetation consistent consisting of typically short plants with long narrow leaves, growing wild or cultivated in lawns, pastures, or used as fodder crop. Second, mainly herbaceous plant that constitutes. Grass, which has been, which has jointed stems and spikes, small wind-pollinated flowers. So I think okay. what's important yeah, is like have, the wind pollination and then the structure of long, yeah. narrow leaves. I have jointed stems, plant consisting of jointed stems, sheath, mm-hmm. sh- sheathing leaves, and seed-like grains. Yeah. So. I think all of those, the long, narrow leaves, the sheaths, the jointed stems, wind-pollinated, that basically, and, and the grain, you know, yeah. had some, for, for some plants, it's really kind of characteristics of a lot of things that we're going to talk about here today. But really, everyone can identify a grass. Yeah. Now, and, and you know, it's important to note, neither one of us are botanists. I don't even have a degree in wildlife management, if you will. What, I guess, we'll call this layman's terms of grasses. And that's kind of our whole podcast is layman's terms. So, you know, there's a lot of really in-depth stuff out there. Uh, a lot of great research that we follow, but if we can't understand it or figure out how to take that research and put it into real life land management, then we're going to miss the boat. And you, so you bring up a great point. I mean, there are there are extremely skilled botanists who know far more about plants, plant uh, physiology, and the identification of plants than us. Yeah. But but what is important is to be able to break down the significance of grasses and just say, hey. 
you can go deeper than this, but really, if you want to become skilled at managing land for wildlife, this is what you need to know. And that's yep. what this podcast it's, is going to bring. It's all Lady Grip, baby. That's it. That's it. So there are a lot of ways that you can break down grasses and into different categories. And what we're going to do is kind of start with those and then go into more or less how grasses benefit or don't benefit species such as deer, turkey, and quail. But first and foremost, annuals versus perennials. Yeah. People, like, what, what's one of the Man. first things that you... When, when when you're, like, trying to manage a grass, like, let's say it comes up in a food plot or, or it's in a field, what's, like, the first, like, check when you, when you realize, okay, we need to manage this that you go through in your head? Because for me, it's like, okay, that's an annual. That's a perennial. I, I look at it from a standpoint, like, if I see a plant that's not something that I planted or not something I expected, first I first thing I do is try to figure out if it's native or non-native. Sure. Um, and then once I do that, then it's like, let's let's break this down even more. And that's the next step. Is this a perennial or is this an annual? And because, and the reason I ask that my, to myself is, is this something that's just a sign of disturbance that over time is going to filter just out? fade away. Like right. an annual would be? Mm-hmm. Or is this something, a perennial, that I'm going to have to, if I don't take care of it today, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to deal with this for years and years. Totally. Totally. And I think that that, that basis of the first question gives people, well, when they're dealing with grasses, it, it gets you to like the next step. I don't know if yeah. some people are familiar with this term or not, but it's like a dichotomous key. And so when, when you're going through and trying to identify plants before there was like iNaturalist and stuff, yeah, people would use a dichotomous key and you went through the plant characteristics. And it's kind of like a stair step thing yeah. to get to a plant. Like yeah. that takes me back to college. Much longer <laughs> process. Horrible. iNaturalist <laughs> and all these plant snaps and things. Make, yeah. They make Short a lot of us in that. a field botanist. Pretty yeah. quickly. Very, very quickly. But but essentially, not to downplay is, field botanists. Guys, we love you. Yeah. You guys know way more than we do. Way but more. we can get pretty far along in IDing plants now totally. with technology. Totally. And enough to make the decisions that need to be made, right? Yeah. Yep, but, yep. but first and foremost, annuals, Kill or thrive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. Annual versus perennial, that gives us the first step of, of saying what needs to be done. What is, the, what is the next step to be able to say, hey, we're going to keep this around or we're not. Or this is just a product of the fact that you you had a disturbance here. You grazed really hard. And yep. now we've got this growing late summer. And it's an annual. And this this base, out. this field that was a cool season dominant grace, you, uh, or grass, yeah. you grazed it very hard during peak time of that base grasses window and now because you knocked it way back we've opened it up for other things dirt. to grow yeah. here's some annuals coming in this annual yeah. grass is a product of that yeah but we don't need to get crazy concerned because it's an annual and we just might not graze that hard next year yeah don't have to worry about it so we got annuals versus perennials so some examples of annuals foxtail that comes up all the time and has foxtail a, millet yep yep and that has um, a big significance for a lot of different critters. Um, some people hate it. I mean, some people just, you know, from a, from a grass standpoint, they see it in a food plot and they just hate foxtail. And, um, but, it, you know, it's an annual grass. A lot of people deal with it. Um, but a lot of people try and, and have it in, let's say, a wild dove field at the right times of the year. Sandbur, crabgrass is another one. Yeah. That is an annual. And then barnyard grass is another yep. one. 
that's an annual type of grass. So they if are producing right, seed. Now, barnyard grass, one of Kyle Hedges' natives that yeah. he really, really likes, uh, yep. that he mentioned being one of his favorites. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Kyle, if that's not true, but I know you do. That's one uh, of his. When I ask him about managing that. without food plots or without non-natives. Specifically what, for doves. Yeah, yeah, that's what he mentioned. So, um, So those are just the plants that are producing a seed every single year and they're not coming back from a root system. That plant dies, seed drops, and then that seed is what's propagating the next year's growth. Simple annual. Perennials, some examples of those. Broom sedge, smooth brome, switchgrass, little blue stem, river oats. Mm-hmm. All those are a perennial base, so they have a, a root system that lives, it goes dormant, and then it re-sprouts from that root system the following spring after the winter months. But it, it still does produce seed heads that can be carried off yeah. uh, various ways. Um, but those are perennials, and you would attack those much differently than you would if you're trying to manage them um, versus an annual. And, there, I mean, these are just small examples of – there's huge, huge lists. Yep. So you got annual versus perennial. Yep. The next little classification is cool season – Versus warm season yeah, grasses. And I think that this is where people really try and understand um, plants, whether whether they are good or bad, let's say. And I think that there's that can be super misleading because we specifically talk a lot about non-native cool season grasses. And I think that sometimes that might have some, when, when people hear cool season grasses, that's got like, negative undertones because they're so people often think of you know the non-native versions but there's a lot of cool season native grasses that are good yeah that provide things for wildlife um but then you have warm season grasses so if i were you know what's the definition in your head of cool season versus warm season it's kind of in the name you but know like, in layman's terms it's going to be you're going to look at a uh, warm season grass being that it's most productive during the warmest time of the year for that climate. So for us, you know, a warm season grass, some of our regionally dominant grasses are going to be coming on in May or June and then slowing down and kind of hitting the end of their cycle in September, October. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the cool season grasses are going to be coming on strong in March and then you know during they may make uh they may make seed heads by early summer and then we don't see much out of them other than a little kind of green clump through the a fall tough right yeah yeah and so um do you want me to list all you, are you no, plan I'm, on listing some I'm of those gonna, I'm going to list some but okay. there's there's a lot I mean you could go through I think I think of like bottom ground right now or river bottoms you go through that stuff um I was in Oklahoma in late November early December and there was River oats and and uh, wild rye and stuff like they were green at the base. Yeah, like they're not really actively growing right now, but they still were green at the base, preparing for next year. Yep. Um. So a couple examples: cool season grass, tall fescue, non-natives. Well, let's do. Let's break it up into non-native cool season. Grasses. I'm going there next. Okay. In, in the in the breakdown, but you you can name them when I when tall I tall fescue. Them off. That one's. Non-native. Non-native. Canada wild rye. Native. Native. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, my head was going somewhere else oh, when gotcha. you said tall fescue. So, because there is an uh, there is a 
uh, native fescue, but correct. Um, tall fescue, specifically the pasture varieties, Kentucky 31 yep. is a, a very common one. Uh, but you said Canada wild rye, which is native. Bottle brush grass. Native. Wheat. Uh, so non-native. Yep. Um, but it, not is, it really is a type even of grass. A, yeah, it is a type of grass, but it's not really even like you don't find a lot of wild what we all picture as wheat. Correct. It's it's it's, it's a it's a, it's a hybridized cultivor, yeah. cult, cultivated cultivated plant. So yep. it's not like naturally found growing yes. um, and and reoccurring uh, propagating. Like you're going to go over there. to Europe and find wild prairies of wheat. Yeah. Like yeah. there are other plants that have the name wheat in them. Yeah. That are wild. But this is, we're just talking generic wheat. Because yeah. a lot of people, are just, they just don't know that that is a type of grass. But it, it, yeah. it's, it certainly is. Um, and, and it's a cool season, just like oats would be, just like a rye would be. Cereal rye. A triticale. Yeah. Um, Those are the four, big barley. four that you see. A barley would be another one. So uh, the five in the food plot variety that are most common. All but, non-native, all cool season. But like we talked in the in the definitions, those are the ones that have the grain heads on them. Like yeah, that's that's a characteristic all of annuals. that definition. Yep. And then uh, smooth brome, which yeah. is non-native. Non-native. There well. is a variety of brome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Canada wild brome. Correct. That is a native, uh, more in the northern climates. But most of what people find is smooth brome, which is a non-native, cool season turf grass. Then we go into some examples of warm season grasses. Yeah, crabgrass. Yeah, non-native. Yep. There are native varieties of crabgrass, but most people are dealing with it's with the generic. Yeah, n- generic non-native. Right. Big blue stem. Yeah, native. Indian grass. Native. Side oats grandma. It's, uh, native. And eastern gamma grass. Native. And that eastern gamma grass yeah. we've talked about is kind of like rides the line of like, kind of it's it's a really early oncoming warm, warm season. Yeah. Like it it is a fantastic, amazing clump forming grass. It gets super tall. But has thick blades. But I mean, and that's what is April May? and May yeah. when it's peaked out, and then it's seed heads by early June, and then it kind of just lays there mm-hmm. and works itself. It's almost like something that comes out and explodes like a it's volcano. A, it starts to yep. kind of like, like you can just see like everything moving to the side, and then it gets more horizontal. And then it just it loses its yeah. vertical structure, and, it, and, and then by this time of the year, it's just a big flat thing that looks mm-hmm. like you walked up to a clump of grass and smashed it right it's down. Like an it elephant just, sat on it, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But but it, it's funny how it all like it goes up vertical and then as it matures the seed heads begin to fall once it's out past basically its reach uh, yeah. of its of its own plant to disperse the the seed. Some of the other common ones, uh, Johnson grass being non-native, Bahia yeah. grass non-native, mm-hmm. Bermuda, Bermuda grass non-native, um, and, and those are examples now as they get into the native versus non-native okay. grasses. Um, if you guys we'll can't tell, about. Matt's looking at the notes. I'm not. So. We've got that was our second classification: um, the cool season versus warm season. Now, it's very common to go native versus non-native. So, yeah. examples of native grasses: barnyard grass, little and big blue stem, Indian grass, the side oats, three on. Um, yeah, purple three on. It's there's a bunch of the the ons that are yeah. all types of of grasses. They're more in the short grass type. Prairie yep. or Texas rangeland, you think of, or glady as I'll get out, mm-hmm. rocky, shallow yeah. stuff, low, uh, low, low moisture. grandma would be another yep. one in that. Um, and then some blue non- grandma. Going with another, I was yep. just trying to. My my mind was racing down all the glady, dry, gotcha. nasty climate. All right, non-natives. But, yeah, those are those are all natives. So non-natives that a lot we talk about a lot. 
on the podcast, Japanese stilt grass. Well, some people call it Japan grass. Yeah. Um, Trump probably would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goose grass, Johnson grass, tall fescue, Bermuda, and Bahia grass. Those are all yep. non-native grasses. And then the other classification that, like, super easy, anyone could tell this, bunch grasses oh, versus yeah. sod-forming grasses. Yeah. Yep. And that's just the way that they are typically seen growing. Because um, a lot of these grasses can be rhizome, like rhizomal yep. spreading. Um, so those are those are Some more or less. Go with, so <laughs> native bunch grasses would be like little blue stem. Yep. Indian uh, grass. Indian grass. Um, switch grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Gamma grass. Definitely. And some of your... Um, and, and, and then even some of the cool seasons would be considered somewhat bunch grass, like the, the wild rye, wild rise. Yeah. Bottle brush, even river oats, which I don't see it as clumpy as, as, as others, but it is considered yeah. a clump grass. Um, those are all natives that are, yeah, are bunch. And the cool season grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got native, non-native, uh, or I guess you could say native turf grasses, mm-hmm. which the list isn't, I couldn't just list off, but buffalo grass. Buffalo is the big one. Uh, and then creeping red fescue mm-hmm. would be another native cool season. Uh, or an, that, It's a cool season grass, but, but buffalo grass is a warm season grass, yeah. Buffalo grass is one of those we get a lot of guys ask about landscaping because we mm-hmm. talk so much about a lot of our invasive problems coming from the landscaping residential side. And so we've had guys that have uh, landscaping businesses kind of reach out and are like, you know, this is something that – I'm looking for, or I'm trying to go into a native approach, and buffalo grass has become a common one, and then, of course, creeping red fescue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even letting other other plants kind of designate where it's not big of yards, but that's a whole other podcast. Well, I mean, and, and there's a lot of the native stuff that um, we're starting to see creep back into the way they should be, um, but a lot of landscaping stuff. Yeah. Um, a lot of the... A lot of the um, Blue stems are coming in, and then even river oats I've seen along areas. Yeah. It's and like, some switchgrass. They're pretty, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. really are gorgeous. That's just me talking. But there's a lot of different ways to break those up. But essentially, anyone can, can get an idea of a bunch forming grass. It, it's literally a clump that comes out of the ground, usually grows extremely vertical, but it does not spread across the ground and like evenly distribute itself across the top surface it is yeah. in clumps across the does landscape not spread through rhizomes yeah whereas sod forming does it yeah. literally is just sod so everyone can put that together but essentially those five ways are great ways that everyone should be considering grasses when they encounter them well which does it fall into here which does it fall into this category in this category in this category to be able to then make a management decision of yeah. good versus bad, um, because all of them do fall into to these categories, um, and then it basically just will dictate for you what those next steps are in the management. So, quail, deer, and turkey all extremely different, right? You got yeah. you got one bird that's six ounces, deer all the way up to you know. 250 pounds plus yep turkeys right there in the middle 20 plus pounds but they all use grasses they forage differently um some are ground nesting while others just drop a fawn 
you know, the mammals and birds, mm-hmm. th- they just use grasses completely different across the landscape. Um, and then especially throughout the entire year. But what we're going to go into next is breaking down deer, turkey, and quail. And then essentially as a grass or really as any vegetation type, whether we're talking shrubs or trees, our kind of back wall for good or bad, do I keep it, do I leave it, do I minimize it, is what's the cover value for the specific animal we're trying to promote here, Yep. and then what is the food value. And yep. that helps determine then, again, what is the next? what are the next steps. So what we're going to do is go through cover benefits of grass and food benefits for deer, turkey, and quail. Try and break yeah. them out um, the best yeah. we can. For, and then and then go through the cons. You know, we got to talk yeah. about just that's the only way to be fair. We're talking about Pros grasses. and cons of yeah. these grasses, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So for deer, let's talk yeah. cover benefits of grass and what that does for the species, deer in particular, for the yeah. moment. So when, when I think about grass, specifically native grass, um, native bunch grass, and, and it doesn't matter what one, but let's just say anywhere from uh, little blue stem, which is two, three, sometimes even four foot tall, to switch grass, which could be seven foot tall. Mm-hmm. Typically, I see it around five or six foot. Um, is the cover aspect. It can be phenomenal cover um, during a portion of the year. Mm-hmm. And that portion being typically on the cool, uh, late fall, early spring, and, and of course winter. I, I think of October, November's great months, even sometimes late September in, in the northern climates, uh, yeah. as great. Like that's when they're utilizing that type of cover the most. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think as we get into this too, I, I, I want you guys to understand that when you look at cover. Cover aspect for specifically white-tailed deer, because so many of our listeners are white-tailed deer fanatics, is all of these, not just the grasses, but then the forbs, the shrubs, the trees, um, they all play into a puzzle. They're all a piece of that puzzle. Uh, And you can't have a complete puzzle with just one piece. Like, we're not going to do cover justice for deer by talking about grasses. Yeah. We, We have to have forbs and shrubs and trees as a part of that, but... If you really want to maximize yeah, the cover. Yeah. You, if, if you're planting, let's say, switchgrass for the added benefit of cover to a farm, you're, mi- you're missing out on cover a- a- as a whole entire piece of the puzzle for deer. Yep. That's, that's, that is a fractional aspect of cover. It can, pr- can provide some for sure, but you're still going to be missing many windows out of the year. If you're if you're trying to lean on one specific one specific um, vegetation type, but not only yeah. one specific vegetation type, it is also one species within that vegetation type. Yeah, like you just like you got narrowed it all your, wrong. yeah you narrowed yourself down to and limited the the actual benefit of those acres that you know if you're trying to devote them to cover. I think about one this. Species. I think about this a lot too. Uh, in, in fact, today as we prepared for <coughs> this, um, you were doing notes and I was doing notes in my head and. I think about it a lot, and when I say society, we'll just say society of of land managers, guys who enjoy trying to improve the habitat for wildlife, and I feel like so many times, more times than not, we go against nature's natural cycle. We've talked about this before, but especially not only from planting, but also management. I mean, go into a natural landscape and find even a 
even when a storm blew through. And you're going to find trees that got bent over, kind of replicating a little bit of a hinge cut standpoint, mm -hmm. or trees that got snapped 10 foot up, trees that got completely blown over, and then other trees that just got left. Uh, and then you go into a natural prairie, and you're going to find all kinds of different types of plants growing. And you you might find a dense pocket the size of a swimming pool that's a monoculture. Um, but you're not going to find vast acres in one type of species or one type of management. And yeah. it seems like in society of land managers, we're like, I need to plant a monoculture and I need to hinge cut all, th all things in this area. And, and we go against everything nature has put uh, forth. And, it, and that's the, I mean, that is just beating, you're pounding sand. Eventually, you, you're just not even getting anywhere. You may feel like it, but over time, it just, nature does exactly what it wanted to do, diversify the landscape. Yeah, you have saplings starting to grow into to certain areas. I mean, it just begins to take back over, and you feel like Disease you're losing ground. Disease kicks in, yeah. whatever. And and you, that whole, the whole monoculture is gone, but... Yeah, I, you can't – like, I'm all about – and what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast is all about taking the the complexities of the natural world that God designed and trying to strip strip it down into a way that makes sense for land managers. But, but so much information, I feel like, is out there that people want to continue to strip down what – shouldn't be stripped down anymore it's like you you want to try and make it too simple and too basic because for some for some reason because you just want to go plant something you just want to go do something and then just it just work well one that's not how you the play, natural world works play god yeah but what we're trying to do from a management standpoint and, and by working with with individuals and developing yeah they're complex management plans but but when we look at like a property in our brains and the way the natural world world works, we have stripped it down to like a lot of the bare bones package of here's what you need to learn and you need to know about your property and its resources. Manage them in these acres in this way. Boom. Do that. Not not plant monoculture. Yeah. And never touch again. Like that's just not you can strip it down and get it way too much bare bones. Because sometimes this stuff is confusing. Yeah, totally. And 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 don't but don't do yourself and then the wildlife and your property the injustice of trying to strip it down too much because that's when you continue to just ram your head into the wall and say be frustrated and you see the erosion you see you see um, all these disease you know species and you're like crap or you see you plant something that you believe to be the best cover possible and you realize that it's too thick and the deer don't even use it anyway yeah yeah so cover cover, cover, cover benefits of grasses let's get cover, back to that cover benefits of grasses from from september you know it, it, and and this all depends on climate or region um in the northern states you're going to see deer utilize grass stands and i think that's why switchgrass monoculture has been so popular uh, in the northern states um, is because deer utilize those areas more because you get a wind block and you also still get sun penetration. Mm -hmm. So if there's if it's not cloudy but it is windy and cold, they're going to be somewhere out of the wind where they can collect sun yep. and, and they can warm up. And grass does 
does that perfectly. Yeah. Especially if it's a taller bunch grass because they can bed up right against the base of that clump, catch the sun, and be out of the wind. Totally. And so that's awesome. Yep. But from the flip side of that, if you're in the southern climate or southern United States and you're like, well, I, I planted this switchgrass. Well, there's no wind going through it. No. And it's hot. It's and the still sun hot. still comes in. It's the exact opposite. Yep. And so you're like, well, there's no deer out there because there's hardly any shade and there's no breeze and the sun's still shining. Mm-hmm. So it's just like... Yeah, from a standpoint of grass cover, if you're in the southern part of the United States, it would be for that small window of time when it's cold and windy. In and, the and northern part of the states, it's a bigger window of time, let's say October to even April, if you're way up there, where you need sun to shine and wind blocked. The issue with that is... If you're far enough north, you're going to get heavy snows. That's why the diversity of shrubs and trees and evergreens comes into play because then you have the ability for something to block. You can't rely on a grass to stand up and and much less, you know, more than three inches of snow or or, or ice. Like, it just doesn't work. Yep. You have to have the complexities of... Real wet snow, heavy ice, freezing rain. We've seen fields, fields of switchgrass... Well, we've seen wow. a lot of the negatives. We've seen in, in Iowa, switchgrass monocultures where deer would not penetrate them mm-hmm. unless the fringes, mm-hmm. so basically created living hedgerows for deer. And then we've also seen the standpoint of a field of switchgrass that was completely flattened with a with a wet snow in um, January. Yep. And so that's why we don't speak too highly about it because I take it to the bank, There's there's a better option. Uh, than going against nature's natural cycles. Well, and, and there's a better option, but again, when we're looking at the the cover aspect, we're talking you know uh, the deer's back is four four and a half foot tall off the ground, wow. and so like there's some grasses that will never be of cover aspects for deer. Yeah, like Japanese stilt grass. That that's yeah. not cover. Like yeah. that just there's no way that that grass will be of of any cover. Switch grass. Yeah, now now we have a height that will hide some deer, but does it really need to be that tall? Most times, no. Nope. Because when they bed down, their their heads maybe two foot off the ground. Yeah, two and a half foot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, you know, little blue or younger stands of switchgrass or mixtures of all those different types of grasses with the shrubs and with the forbs. Um, the forbs all make way more sense for cover because. Truthfully, too, I mean, switchgrass, if you got seven-foot-tall switchgrass throughout an entire field of deer beds down, if if the cover is all the exact same height, then the and, and switchgrass blades a little bit thicker than little blue or, yeah. or big blue or Indian grass, you don't get the sun penetration through there. It's more better at blocking wind. But all these things to say, we just rattled off four or five different types of grasses, and each one of them, although they might have had some things in similar, being warm seasons or more bunch forming, the the width of the, the sheath and the leaf itself was different, so it plays a different role in, in cover. Yeah. Like, it's not just a grass good. Like, you can't boil it down to just that much. You can't just... It's very hard to simplify 
land management, especially plant communities, and be successful. And, and the key word in that is plant communities. Yeah. And that's the really the backbone of the podcast series is to say, here's the good and the bad of, of all these things. We can't rely on all of them uh, individually. We need to rely on all of them working together as a community. And I think if anyone was, was to hire um, us or read a management plan that was put together, that from any type of management is is throughout the entire plan of communities. Yeah. And this works on that, and that works on this, and this works at this time of the year. So you have your bases covered, and, and you're not just left hang, you know high and dry at one portion of the year when you really need, this is your stress period, and you haven't covered it. All those things, that's a plant community aspect. Another thing we haven't really mentioned too much is is um, you know reproduction for fawns. Fawns require different cover. Can you imagine you know just a, oh. a couple hour old fawn trying to get through some rank native grass stuff? It would be very difficult. Or a rank switchgrass planting. Right, that's what I'm saying. It's like you you couldn't. I thought you the way ask. you the way you said it was. Uh, Native grass, I thought, and so I was picturing a diverse field of grasses, which is still difficult to penetrate. But straight switchgrass, specifically Caven Rock mm-hmm. variety, it is just doggone thick, even hard for a man to navigate through. Mm-hmm. And it, and Alamo switchgrass down south, Texas, yep. Oklahoma, in the marshy areas, where it's just like, there, I don't want to walk through that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and and like, not to get too much into the into the. Um, weeds but like it's it's a bunch grass but like switchgrass it it fans out a lot it's not yeah. just like straight vertical it's not a column it yeah. really fans out so a couple inches off the ground where a fawn would be laying or they'd be trying to walk through it's so dense and thick like it just it does not work that well so unless that field has been burned or you have discs to try and diversify plant communities and it's growing back at that time frame it's probably not that much good cover. Yeah. So again, it's a, a plant community standpoint. So cover, there are aspects that grasses do well um, in in a cover, and, yeah. it, and we have really hung on the warm season grasses. Um, there are some cool seasons we see in bottomlands that, mm-hmm. if given enough light into those bottomland areas, you can get some good height out of bottle brush or river oats or Canada Wild Rye, Virginia Wild Rye, that yep. at certain times of the year, those can be decent cover, too. We, we walked a property last week with river oats that were chest high, mm-hmm. five, four, four and a half foot tall. Um, now, this little riparian area was getting pretty good sunlight, but there was a spot, I don't know, as big as our backyard, or my backyard, um, that's, you know, 50, 40, 50 yards long, and then 20, 30 yards wide that was just mostly dominated by river oats mm-hmm. and uh and of course lo and behold landowners said yeah we jumped deer when we first bought this place coming in here it's like i'm not shocked by that right. like where right. else do you see this kind of cover on the property at that height yeah um still standing here in mm-hmm. december late late december yeah absolutely and, and so so there are cool season grasses native grasses that do really well for that type of, of, of cover aspect. It does not just have to be warm season um, grasses. And I think that a lot of times we, it just, you know, the grasses get a big highlight, but then warm season from a wildlife aspect get a big highlight too, where cool seasons, natives 
have their play and everything too. Yeah. Whether it's nesting, we'll get into that for, for other species here. But um, specifically deer, it has a role, but it's not nearly as, as strong as a lot of people. We'll get into a little bit of percentage breakdown of like an old field stand of how much grass we would yeah. ideally want, or we wouldn't want it to exceed this amount here in a little bit. But um, what about grass for food benefits for deer? <laughs> and that's been one of the biggest uh, all right, pause for 10-minute rant here. But food benefit from a deer standpoint from grasses is very slim. There's a, there's a small group of grasses that deer would eat from the standpoint of just attractiveness. There's some other plants that when green, they would eat. But if you see them eating those plants, there's a bigger problem at, at, at the farm because it could be just food is limited so much that they're forced to eat this. And so from a food standpoint of, let's just start with the warm season grasses and so, since they're the most popular. But switchgrass, there's no forage value to, mm. to white-tailed deer. Little blue stem, none. Big blue stem, none. Um, any grass, none. Uh, any of the other little... On, purple on or or uh, the grandmas. No, no food value. Um, if you see, if you saw a deer, if you send me a video of a deer eating one, we've got bigger issues. Um, the fact that they're starving, and so well, and, and a lot of no, it, there's no food value. A lot so of it comes down to not not only the 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 food value, but the actual like the structure of the actual plants. Like when things get to a certain maturity, when in like within grasses, you think about it, like. The leaf material isn't that much of a grass, yeah. especially something with a, a lot of vertical height. Like, there is so much lignin content, so that's like the structural component in the cell wall, that they, get, you can't, they can't break that down. They don't have the gut of, of a, a cattle. They don't have the gut of bison. So they can't break that stuff down. But what and grasses even the you, cows don't. Yeah. They get they to a certain select. Point. No. If you had switchgrass six foot tall. Sorry, they're probably not eating it. They're sticking their head or bending it over to get to the very center of that and stuff. And even that, they don't like it. No. So, I, and for example, we've been on properties where Alamo switchgrass was very popular in the mm-hmm. wet areas, and they were overgrazing all the other grasses, oh, yeah. and the switchgrass was still six foot tall. Not even bothered. Because they don't want to stick their head in that clumpy grass to eat it. So, that's a cow. They that, about eat anything. Just about. So, Any kind of grass, I should say. So when it comes to the grasses that, that deer do eat, it's in a very certain stage of that grass. Specifically, think about wheat. Yep. They may eat, and I've seen them, in like the certain stage of seed production. They'll come and eat the actual seed heads. Yeah. But the, the stage between like the bolting stage, when they're setting up the, the seed head for seed production maturity... They're not eating wheat. Not like much. It's, no. It is very, very minimal, but they'll eat it when it's in the grass stage and has just germinated because the plant itself hasn't matured and has that super high lignin cell yeah. content, cell wall content. So, like, it's, it is a factor in a food game side of things. But, again, most of those grasses that they do forage, it's all a supplemental thing. It's not naturally occurring at most I just looked it up um, on the graph that we commonly use in a, in a report. But um, at most, the spring is 10% of a deer's diet is grass. At most. Yeah. It doesn't specify which grass specifically. But um, anyhow. When is on that same graph, when is grass higher than 10%? It's not. 
It, grass was the, that, that was the highest. And that was in spring. Temperature okay. was the highest. Every every other portion of the year is less than that. Yeah. So, so not a very big factor. At the very highest on grasses I, is ten percent. I can't tell, but I've seen again back to the bottomland stuff. I've seen you know the little grass clumps, and some of them obviously have been sedges, but some of them have been um, like the the wild rise being browsed during the yeah. spring. Yeah. But it's, again, it's a tiny, and tiny portion. And a lot portion. of times, that's like when it's limited. Like, yeah, like that's wh- like, where that's else like, is there food? That's like then? when when March is like super cold. And it's like, please give me something. They've else. already eaten all the woody browse, and they're yeah. like, okay. green. I guess I'll get it down. Yeah. So it does not have a large percentage of time in which a grass is is um, heavily foraged upon. So essentially, not not that it's a zero value. But it is an extremely, and I would from a food standpoint, yeah, yeah, yeah. say it's it's extremely insignificant um, yeah. to the entire realm of, of a deer's diet. So, if you have a property consisting of a large majority of grass, then you better have some. The acres that aren't grass better be producing a ton of forage. A ton, and and I know a lot of people are thinking, well, guys, what about like you know? I look at Western Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, and South Dakota. There's parts of there that's just you know it's just prairie stuff, and there's lots of grass. Well, yeah, but what do we talk about at the beginning of the podcast? You walk out in there, there's forbs all over. Like yeah. that is not just a grassland out there. It is extremely diverse with lots of different types of and so forbs. During the spring and summer, there's tons of food because of all the forbs. But during the fall. That's shrubs. where woody browse. They got to yeah. be eating shrubs, and that's where if shrubs aren't on the landscape or two four D has been used a lot, and the mm-hmm. forbs are removed, that's where you see deer yeah. having huge ranges. Or in the winter, you see deer really herding up and moving mm-hmm. into cut crop fields where you're like, I'm seeing a hundred hundred plus deer because there's nothing else. That's out the there only now. way to survive. Yep. So if if you're in one of our listeners in Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota, North Dakota, in a in the Plains states. And you're like, man, how can I really maximize this? You got to look at adding the the forbs. Yep. If you don't have them already, um, to the landscape, the native forb varieties, and then also you need to look at adding shrubs in a lot of your riparian areas, ditches, uh, ditches, drainages, those little coolies to yep. where you have woody browse available. Um, and we still so want you to manage with that's fire. That's why you see sumac. We see sumac oh. just. Hammered, browse like gray crazy. dogwood, silky dogwood, red osiers. They're just pounded. Every, yep. every place we go to that has them, they are they are torched. Um, so we got we covered the food cons of grasses. <laughs> to, to me, it's pretty easy. We just set them. We just set it exactly. No food value. Very little very food, little. and and really not much cover value. But specific times of the year and in specific regions of the country. Um, again, and and if we have a field, we don't want excessive amounts of grass in there so those would be the cons in, in my opinion of of a grass specifically for deer now turkey turkey's a whole different ball game we're, we're talking vastly different um foraging yep. uh, um regimes and different. diets Di- yep and the way that they rear young is completely different yeah i mean we're talking about something that eats insects and not just all plant material mm-hmm. so when it comes to cover benefits of grass what do you think for turkeys yeah, depending on the time of the year but pretty good the the issue once again would be is it too rank yeah for sure um can is there the possibility of predation mm-hmm. on on turkeys um you know in the spring they're not there's very little value in a dense stand of warm season grass <laughs> very, very uh, 
from a standpoint of, uh, you know, later in the fall, even then, you know. Usually it's just too rank. It had it's too much growth. almost always too rank. Yep. And so now from a cover standpoint for wild turkey with, with grasses, both cool season and warm season, I'd rank it at a five or less on a mm-hmm. scale of one to ten because from from cover yeah. for cover value. They're, like you look at, I want it, but I don't want it over a lot of acres, and I would rather have it in a few clumps scattered around, mixed with other stuff, rather well, than an entire field. It, it, of it. It's funny when, and we'll get into this next week when we cover Forbes. But like Forbes, because there's a amazing diversity of Forbes. But like when you look at grass cover or height that it typically grows in, most things grow two foot and higher, <clears throat> between two to six, seven foot tall. Yeah. Forbs, really a lot of the same way. There's some that are low growing to the ground, but most of them fall within that two to seven foot category. And forbs are way easier to traverse and walk. They don't really or typically become super rank where it's just this massive conglomer- conglomeration where you can't navigate it unlike grasses. So yeah. from from this comparison, we're kind of foreshadowing, you'll see a lot more forb-heavy presence from the cover aspect and the food aspects because of those qualities compared to what grasses have or what they don't have. Um, that, that you, you just open up a little can of worms. I'll try not to spend too much time on it. But um, that right there in, in, in the definition of what you just said about grasses being a little bit more aggressive or dominant than forbs where you don't see forbs just like so rank you can't walk through and deer and wildlife aren't utilizing it well i think that's what paints a picture of historical landscape with bison herds and uh herds of elk Elk. and deer which were browsers which were probably eating more forbs um grazers and browsers yeah and so you had the deer which were eating a lot more of the forbs but Mm -hmm. that never got to it never got to a point where they were over over browsing the forbs because the bison herds were also browsing the grasses so they were constantly both getting knocked back to where you always had a diverse landscape rather than a herd of deer constantly over browsing the forbs where it became too dominated by grasses i i I consistently read and see and i know you observe it the same way the same fashion when when we're on the road but but states like pennsylvania maryland and virginia um a lot just a lot of the mid-atlantic they're deer densities that are so extremely high that there is like little to zero forest regeneration yep and and that is extremely damaging but that's that's an example right now currently that's happening of too many um a herd that is too big that it's i'm about to call hold on (coughs) excuse me but a herd that is too big that heavily selects forbs and woody browse that is limiting the next generation of yeah. those that group of vegetation. And you throw invasives in on that, and that's <clears> just <throat> a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> yes, it is. So back to grasses, I guess. Uh huh. For turkeys. For turkeys, not not great, but still uh, one thing. And I, I know you're probably thinking about it. So, um, Go ahead. but when you look at it from a standpoint of of from nesting standpoint, yes, it's important that yeah. there are grasses on landscape. I, I love now to they see can it. still nest in in a rag like ragweed or shrub combination, mm-hmm. but having those grasses is good. I like that standpoint. Uh-huh. That's why I like woodlands so much because you can have those grasses intermixed with the oaks. But um, 
for a lot of our guys, a lot of our listeners that probably have riparian areas, they're, they, they're, they're, they're trying to manage a farm that's not got the upland sites, or if they do, it's it's not allowing it to be habitat. Uh, there's not, it's not allowed to have habitat improvement done on it because whatever cattle pastures or or its crop fields. And so their woods or their wildlife management is devoted to riparian areas, waterways, lowland forests. And you're going well. Big blue switch doesn't grow down there hardly, yeah, sure uh, unless you're doing Alamo switchgrass or some of these switchgrasses that have a little bit uh, more adapt. Uh, they have the ability to adapt to wet feet better. That's where we like those cool season grasses for sure, like cereal rye or not cereal rye, Canada <laughs> wild rye, Virginia wild rye, um, river oats, bottle river brush. oats, bottle brush grass. Those four are very common for us to see in these riparian areas. Specifically, one of the farms yeah. we turkey hunt where. There's not fields of warm season grasses. There's not CRP. There's not big switchgrass stands. In fact, I'm not even sure I've seen little blue stems scattered around that farm. Um, but those riparian areas, those little bitty corridors, corridors, waterways, they have those cool season grasses yep. that by May are a nice bunch grass need a hip high. By by May they're in seed production. Yeah. So so you've got a grass that through the nesting season um it was great good cover. Great cover and great structure to be able to hide a hen and then if she's got the proximity in that specific farm to clover or to other or alfalfa or other um you know forage opportunities then they're going to do well. Like yeah. they're probably on a, on a on a repetitive basis, yearly basis. They're probably going to reproduce at a higher rate based on the proximity of those and the, and just the presence of them. Um, the cool season native grasses and the lowland bottomland stuff. So if you're and looking to add that. cover on your farm and all you have is lowland riparian areas, uh, maybe look at buying some seed that's that river oats or. Canada wild rye, Virginia wild rye, bottle brush grass. Make sure you have sunlight. And then look at doing a little bit of hack and squirt or mm-hmm. TSI and open up that canopy and broadcast it down in the winter and see what happens. Yep. Um, and shoot, who knows? Just by opening up the canopy and getting a little bit of sunlight, it may already be there. It, it would not surprise me one bit if it was. But not And that's all. where those areas are the ones that are hard to burn. Yes. Because you just, you know, we were in a property in Oklahoma where it was it had a lot of that in the, in the lowland. And and in fact, if there's too much of that, it can create uh, turkeys to leave and go find the short grass over the the grazed pastures. That was an extreme case of of dense cover. Yeah. But the other areas, you know, from a natural disturbance standpoint, yeah, it's gonna be tough to burn. But there are like those those areas uh, that we're talking about. <clears throat> their disturbance is flooding. Yeah. So at the right times of the and year, those are going to flood. Historically, didn't burn much anyway. Right. So, you know, there's a lots of different disturbances to create this type of habitat um, that, were, that are necessary. But what about food benefits of grasses for wild turkeys? Absolutely. There's a lot higher value of food than totally. there is cover because they eat little seeds. I've even eaten... I've even cut open crop and seen fescue seeds in there. I've seen fescue. I've seen tons of the Orchard millet, millets, grass, yep. millets, uh, barnyard <laughs> grass, um, um, I'm trying to think of of uh, I've seen the goose grass, crab grasses. I've yeah. seen that in there. Um, Turkeys eat about anything, yep. and and so anything small that they can choke down, they're going to probably eat it. And so and even <clears throat> I would not be surprised. Now, 
it's not that I've harvested many turkeys at the time of the year when Indian grass Certainly. is made seed heads, but I would not surprise me that they do eat some Indian grass or switchgrass, especially because that seed head isn't. Well, it's just that it's of, too tall. There's a lot of the panicum grasses that quail and and wild yeah. turkeys are going and to not, eat. And not and so when he says panicum, that is switchgrass. Yeah, but it's the, it's a family of it's, switch. It's a broad range. So panicums, there's a lot of panicums yeah. that are native that are knee high, deer tongue, and so yeah. you can just panicums are. Uh, a there's a range. lot of them out there that that provide great f- food for. But they all have turkeys. a similar seed head yeah. size, little and, bitty and, round yep. seeds or oblong seeds that that turkeys would definitely eat. Mm-hmm. Now, I would rather them, and I think that they would as well, rather eat more filling forages, yep. uh, insects, um, as well as. Well, that's the important aspect of. <coughs> Food benefits of grasses. Again, we talked about deer; like they're just herbivores. But yeah. turkeys rely on grasses being present in the landscape to then attract other insect life yeah. into those areas. Um, specifically, grasshoppers, leafhoppers, um, spiders, all crickets. sorts of yeah, crickets, yeah. like all sorts of insect life that would be working um, and relying on some some portion of grasses being a part of the landscape there where turkeys are going and for it. certain grasses attract certain insects. And yeah, so the more, the more grass species that you have, the more insects that could be attracted. So and same thing with forbs. Yep, Abs- I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, You'll it's hear it next balance. week yeah. or whenever it's forbs is back and forth. Um, cons for grasses. I too, think, rank, <coughs> yep. too rank. Yep. Too rank. Too mat forming. I think, yep. you know, turkeys, I see turkeys in fescue pastures all the time. Especially in the spring. When they're grazed. When yeah. when they're grazed. Um, yeah. A lot of the hay fields, no, nah, they're not in it. Yeah. Um, and one, they're just pretty much always a monoculture. But, but two, it's just because we see them there, that doesn't mean that's where they want to be or need to be or that that fescue pasture can't be improved because Lord knows it can be for wild turkeys. Yeah. Um, but I would say the biggest con is some of them, they're too tall grasses, um, and then others, they're growing too dense and, like you said, become too rank if not managed appropriately. Yeah. Um, I, th- I feel like that would be the biggest um, setback for, for wild turkeys on this. I think a lot of guys that ask us why they don't have any turkeys, and, and it comes down to the property is just too rank, um, especially if you have a lot of grasses, a lot of CRP, if you're not burning and causing that disturbance or even mowing as much as or lightly disking mm-hmm. as much as I don't like those as much as prescribed fire. If you're not doing some sort of disturbance, I totally would get why the turkeys leave. Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. Um, Bob White's? <coughs> Bob White's cover benefit of grass. Oh, it's, it's, it's great uh, from a standpoint of nesting all the way through uh, into the fall. Now, your quail are not going to survive in a field of straight grass. Never. Um, and they're not even going to survive during a portion of the year of straight grass. They have to. Have, quail are much more dependent on diversity than than the turkeys and the deer. They're not as adaptable. I, um, I, I think I remember this from Frank on on a consult. And if I get this wrong, Frank, I know you'll text us. Everyone embarrass me in our group text. But yeah, I want to say that when it came to quail reproduction, there was kind of this like threshold, you know, per acre. We're talking about bunch grasses. I think they said anywhere from like uh, roughly 25 grass clumps per acre was like optimal for, uh, or they didn't see reproduction be um, 
uh, compromise with having less than 25 clumps. So look, you think of like a broom sedge clump or a little blue stem clump. Yeah. You only need 25 of those clumps per acre. Yeah. And, and nesting is, is, you know, going to be successful for quail. So even that aspect, it's like, well, only 25 of those per acre. That's a football field. That's yeah. not that much. And that's so, from a from a nesting standpoint, it's important. They have to have it, but not just a complete dominant uh, landscape of that. They need forbs. They need for those chicks to be able to hatch from that that clump grass and be able to walk and navigate. So, yeah. no wind picked up there. Yeah. So, anyhow, like that kind of gives kind of gives a for for that window the springtime um, for quail specifically the distribution of grass on the landscape is is necessary. But not like an overly huge issue, you yeah. know. Um, yep. And and then you were talking about going into fall. You're not going to find them a, a ton of times. Transition from the grass to more of the woody structures. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like, you know, during the nesting season. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty important. But that's about the window of time in the whole year where grasses is the the main attraction. Where in the fall, you, woody structure uh, during the summer. It's herbaceous cover. It's mm-hmm. forbs. And so it's just like, yikes, that, that grasses really aren't as hyped up. They're really not as good as they've been hyped up to be. No, no, not not for really any of the species that we've covered today. It's like yeah. <laughs> pretty low value from a cover aspect. Um, and really, <clears throat> from a food aspect, too, I don't see there being a ton, like like the turkeys, um, aspect for, for quail. Now, again, Barnyard grass, foxtail, um, panicum, those types of seed, they yeah. are going to ha- be food value. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the food value, the higher energy stuff for the winter time frame is all for production when it comes to seeds. And, and you look at the seed heads on a lot of the a lot of the warm season grasses that they would have used for cover at different times of the year. They're windblown, dispersed, very light, fluffy seed. There's not like a a let's say a nugget to really get that they can forage on routinely. Yeah. So grasses are key, a key part of the landscape for quail, but seas of grass is still not super important. I, I mean, I was on yeah. a consultation with, with uh, Frank when we went out to Kansas. The gentleman had CRP that was, you know, had just expired and, I mean, well, it was it was a, grass. That's a rank. Uh, I was just on one <coughs> last week of, of it, it was it was ex- extremely just expired rank. CRP and fire dor- and, and dormant season disking. We yeah we were well part of his um, gave him basically a, a bunch of different options. Right, he could he could fire the dormant season disc, or he could um, during the growing season. Well, or, excuse me, prior to the growing season, burn everything off, and then yeah. as soon as it was coming back, spray yeah plateau across it kill out in some of these strips kill some of the grass like you have way too much grass the composition what kind was of grass was extremely thick oh it, i mean anything from indian grass to switch grass to little blue big blue like it was just uh i said s- plateau though you wouldn't be killing it with plateau would you maybe maybe i'm wrong you with were the plateau. wrong on the herbicide <coughs> you were it was the other herbicide you were talking about okay because plateau is typically what you're spraying to kill the other stuff to promote those grasses okay yeah i flipped it then so, but but the the point was the CRP is was way too dense yeah 
for, for birds to really be reproducing, foraging, and holding tight, um, they need it needed to be broken up to actually increase any the grazing. Number of birds. Was there any grazing wasn't, possibility? Wasn't really open to that. Oh, okay, unfortunately. Okay. So, um, so so that I mean that was just a a, a one example of the, of one property. It's like heavy on grass. From a cover and food aspect, it didn't it didn't do much. Super low on the forb diversity and composition yeah. in in those areas. So, even for yeah. quail, so many people think just grass, grass, grass. Yes. That's not where and it switch grass it. being way too thick. And you know, our northern guys, hush it. I know. I'm just stop sending me the nasty email. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that during the snow, that's where all the pheasants, that's where all the quail go. Well, what else did you give them? That's what the else? only option is what switchgrass. There? Yep. And so if in an ideal or world. Or cattails. Yeah, or cattails. Or, yeah. If the reeds canary is What's the flat. next thing on the list? Basically, um, our favorite, least favorite favorites. And, and okay. I wanted to touch on this just a real quick note, but just like the management of grasses, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, in, in old fields, if we're talking deer and, and a wildlife property, yeah. we don't want really any more than 40% covered yeah. in grass. Like, yep. yes, there's some cover value, different times of the year. I like the structural difference from forbs and from um, saplings or brambles. But I don't. I certainly do not want more than 40%. If I do, we're doing something different to that, um, to that old field to create diversity among it. Yeah. And, and so for me, if, if grazing is involved, cattle, I'm, I still don't even want to go more than 70% grasses because yeah. – I still want to have a wildlife benefit in those. And so it may be 70, but when it gets grazed, it'll kind of open up and create a disturbance. That To specify, that is a, you're saying, a cattle. Cattle grazing, yeah. Well, a cattle, but with a wildlife, multi-use property, let's yeah, say. Yeah, Someone yeah. who's not just straight cow. Because cows have a diverse palate too, right? I mean, they they don't just eat grass Yeah. if, if trained appropriately. Um, but but we are obviously removing non-native grasses. You can use, um, you know, Roundup at the right times of the year, 5% solution or four, four quarts an acre will do. Um, uh, I think that comes out to actually two that's and a half. That's a nice that's a hot batch yep. of glyphosate. A lot of people don't go that hot, but if you're trying to control rank stands of grass, you need to get a little hotter. Correct. Um, and or clethodim. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that's 16 ounces an acre. Which is about the most common <coughs> grass-specific herbicide ingredient uh, yes. that people will find in almost any hardware store even. Now, it's a little bit more expensive than glyphosate. That's right. That's right. But um, it doesn't take as much. <coughs> so so favorites and, and least favorites. Yeah. Favorites um, for me, you know, and, and that all depends on the region. But if I go north, I like the switchgrass standpoint. Like if you're going to have a grass, I want it. But yeah. I don't want it to be the only thing that's out there. In the Prairie cord grass is <coughs> yeah. kind of the wet season one that yep. I would like. Yep. Um, so up there, and you then say wet season, you're like wet, oh, wet, wet, wet footed. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, wet footed. Um, so prairie cord grass, switch mm-hmm. grass. I like broom sedge, um, and I like little blue stem. Yep. Um, managed appropriately, broom broom sedge can get a little rank if not managed correctly. Um, down south, I like course broom sedge and little blue and then bushy. i like bushy blue stem bushy blue stem yep yeah um, no, i agree on i mean those. i like big blue stem and i like gamma grass um but uh, those other ones rank a little higher to me for just the ability to withstand and and are kind of really really good bunch grasses well I, and I, I think so you, you named a lot of warm I, seasons i, I named all, all warm seasons i like 
Well, what we talked about is, from a cool scene standpoint, <coughs> the river oats are, are honestly just one of my favorites. And th- those some people name, know them as wood oats or inland oats. Yep. Um, but those those to me are cool. I, I love like the shape of yep. seed heads and everything. But we see those growing all over the place. Yeah, and they're not hard <coughs> to not hard to propagate no. um, or, or come across with y- when you have the right soil moisture um, as well and as sunlight. the sunlight. Yeah. So that's certainly some of some of our favorites when it comes to grasses. If we're going to find them on the landscape, those those are the ones that we want. But least favorites. Least favorites. I know my I, first. I, one. I don't like smooth brome, tall fescue uh, in northern climate. Now, I don't like them in the southern climate either, but you typically find them in the Midwest and north. And down south, I can't stand Johnson grass, Bermuda, Bermuda grass, and Bahia grass. Those three just drive me nuts. And they're all, all non-native. All around, though, what takes the cake for me is the Japanese stilt grass. Oh, that's a terrible one. Non-native. That's the eastern. And, and eastern, and, and, I mean, honestly, south, we see yeah. Arkansas and Tennessee um, have it. Mississippi's got it bad. But anything there in east is sometimes just covered. Uh, the one that I'm really hating on right now, and, and, and just from the standpoint of seeing how invasive it is in the mid-Atlantic and down in the southeast, is Miscanthus sinensis or Miscanthus Chinese silvergrass, most common mm-hmm. name. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I just I just can't stand it. I, I've seen acres and acres and acres just taken over by that and and that one is kind of become a fad of people wanting to use it as a screen any of the miscanthus and what the miscanthus gigantus is the one that people are kind of really keying in on as a great screen because it's sterile and that has a little bit of fear for me from the standpoint of invasive standpoint of there's been a there's been a couple of plants that have been introduced as sterile that through time have cross-pollinated with one of their um, species that they hybridized from. And Correct. through that cross-pollination became unsterile Bradford pear being the most common. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people say it's sterile, but that, until, that it's, specifically until it's thing been may be planted, sterile. yeah, yep. that, that plant may be sterile, but its seed or its pollination crossed with one that's not sterile could totally then... Create, a, create an offspring a, that becomes extremely invasive, yeah. spreads, and has the same tendencies, might, but but reproduces on its own. And so, so Miscanthus gigantus <coughs> was hybridized from common names here, Chinese silvergrass and Amur silvergrass, which mm-hmm. is both on the noxious weed list. Chinese silvergrass, highly invasive, and then Amur silvergrass has been considered aggressive through rhizomial activity. And that yeah. was in from Minnesota DNR. You can look that one up. So two species crossed to create a sterile one. Uh, that's a little bit of me going. It's, it's very concerning. 20 years from now, we may say, well, they were right. It was not. Uh, and and I, I, I would love to be proved wrong on that. I hope I, that I is I hope the case. I am wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But you better hope that you're right because <laughs> if you are wrong, you're going to give an earful for me. I'll be, I'll be on the biggest mountaintop I can find saying, see, this is why we plant natives. natives. Um, so those, all those non-natives, because they don't have naturalized or, or native pests, they get way more aggressive than than a lot of our natives, so they become a monoculture pretty quickly. And I think that let's just say let's wrap it up that that overall 
grasses have a large play in wildlife, but not near the play of forbs, shrubs, and trees that people, you know, would would, would commonly think of. Um, they're overestimated in their value, and I think that by first learning how to identify and break them out, people can then begin to make these same conclusions that we're talking about when it comes to the benefits um, or the lack thereof of having large portions of properties devoted to just grasses. Um, there, there is much I, more to be desired than, there, than grasses and they grasses. Might be, we're going to flip it 180 next week, but they might be the most oversold, overpushed, overpromoted, overrated, and over-discussed plant community or plant field or group of plants with the least amount of production. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. so, like, we hear about them, we talk about them, we see posts about them, we, we, uh, we want to plant them, but yet they provide little amount of well, uh, benefit and, and, compared and to some of the others. Essentially, the the reason why is because a lot of times they can be propagated. They can be put into a bag and then shipped and sold, and then you can and see success, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's it's diffi- more difficult to do that with, with certain trees or shrubs or brambles. Like, when was the last time you saw blackberry seed being sold? Oh, I'm not sure I've ever seen that's it. That's like you know what I mean. Like Native blackberry. Uh, you can go to a lot of hardware can, stores and some, find domesticated ones. Right. But like you can get some maybe potted blackberries. But and we're not s- suggesting to go and do that and, and you know go buy them because you can get them through other ways, a uh, proper management. But we just have got to to realize and place value and significance. If if we're trying, if the goals are to try and make the property as good as it can be for specific wildlife and their requirements, then we need to know, basic, basically we need to put grasses in their place. And and I think that we did that or tried to paint that picture today of, of, of the value that they bring and the value that they don't bring to specific wildlife and just overall land function. We could probably go into further detail about what they do for the land health, which maybe that's another series down the road. But, yeah, but they do they do some awesome yeah. stuff there. So. Yeah. That's grasses in a nutshell. Next week <laughs> yeah, is... Yes, in is, a nutshell. An hour and yeah. 10 minutes. 15! We haven't done days. an hour and 15 minute podcast in a while. Our That's, wives are inside going, my gosh, what's what? happening? We got another one coming. <laughs> yeah. So jump over and hear podcast right. number two this week. Guys, we thank you so much. Hopefully you guys are learning from this. We did. I'll say it on the next one. What? All right, guys. Appreciate okay. it. Yeah.